Good morning again. Good to, it is good to be together. Let me get myself wired up here so I'm not already pulled the uh, mic out of my ear when I got caught on something back there. So uh, try not to do that again. Kemp has told me on uh, more than one occasion that I am covered. And with today's topic, I really do appreciate the covering of, of prayer. Last time I spoke, I started into uh, the book of Colossians. It's one I've read through many times. And as uh, if you're anything like me, you read through books of the scriptures and you maybe don't take the time always to stop and study them out. So I thought uh, Colossians would be a good book for me to study out for myself and then to also uh, bring the messages. And so this morning we'll be in Colossians chapter 1 and we'll be begin our reading in verse 13. And just, uh, just a couple notes about uh, the church here in, in Colossae, uh, just to kind of set the tone for what is happening uh, in the church. This was once a prominent city in Asia Minor, but by the time uh, Paul came along, it was just a small agrarian community. Uh, it was, uh, the church there was started through the work of uh, Epaphras. Uh, it was not a church that was planted by Paul, but uh, Epaphras gave a, Paul to, a report to Paul about this church and it included about their faith and, and love for their fellow believers, but it also included some concerns about things that were happening in the church. There, were, there was a blending of of Gnosticism with the, uh, with the Christian faith as well as legalism and, and some other things. Uh, some of the uh, uh, commentaries I looked at indicated that there was a, a cult of angel worship uh, within this, uh, within this uh, location and that was infecting the church. And so with that report, uh, Paul was prompted to write this letter to the church and in the opening verses of, the, uh, of this letter, uh, Paul praises the Lord for the faith of the Colossian believers, and then he prays for them. He offers prayers that they would be filled with the full knowledge of his will and in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that they would walk pleasing to the Lord, that they would bear fruit for the Lord, and that they would be strengthened. And then he, he gives reasons for his, his praise and prayers, and that was because of the work of the Father, who qualified us to share an eternal life by rescuing us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of his love. And that's where we pick up our, our uh, reading this morning. And there's a little bit of an overlap between my last message and this message. Um, so beginning in verse 13, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Paul writes, who rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and enemies in mind and evil deeds, and in evil deeds, but now he reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I would ask uh, specifically for your help this morning that as we consider the person and the work of the Lord Jesus, oh, that above all that he would be honored through this, that he would receive the glory this morning. And pray that as we consider these verses, that our hearts would be drawn to praise and worship and adoration of who you are, who the Lord Jesus is, and what you have done for us in him and through him. I just ask your help this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. And so this passage that we have here this morning, as I said, as I stated uh, uh, earlier, I really need the covering this morning. This topic is such a big topic. When we talk, it's, it's just a few verses, but I think this is this is some of the highest, in my opinion, some of the highest Christological praise that we see in all of Scripture. And so, as I as I'm handling the as I attempt to handle the, this this topic, each one of these verses, you could spend either an entire passage or a whole series of passages covering. And so I'm going to try to try to cover these in a, in a short time, and so I'm only going to really be able to do a, 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 a surface treatment of it, if you will. Um, but I would submit that the, these passages here uh, is really the, the anchor for the entirety of, the, of his letter to the book of Colossians, and that is the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. And it's in the it's in the person and the work of Jesus that we find the answers to the issues that are facing this church in Colossae as well as the issues that are facing our church. And so before digging into this passage a little deep, deeper, I think it's helpful to, to understand something about the structure of this passage. And for full disclosure, I, this is not something that I came up with because I'm not that brilliant, uh, but one of the commentaries I consulted in preparation brought out that the form of this, the structure of this, is what's referred to as, as a chiastic structure. That's a, that's a big fancy word that basically means, it, think of it almost like a V-shape, where you have the first statement and the last statement are related to each other. The first statement will be made, and then as you go through it, then the last statement relates to the first, worded differently, and it offers maybe a little bit further uh, help in understanding this. Then the second, the second statement, and then the second to last relate to each other, and so on and so forth. And so just, a, just as an example, some have considered this type of structure for all of Scripture. And, and they point out that in Genesis 1, we see God created in the heavens and the earth. And what do we see at the end of Scripture? The new heavens and the new earth. In Genesis 3, we see the curse for sin. In Revelation, we see the curse being removed. And it goes so on and so forth. And in that chiastic structure, it, it narrows down until you get to the, to the core or, or the, central, the central theme that's being talked about. 
And so as we go through this, and, and keeping this in mind, I'm, I'm going to go through this a little bit differently. Instead of going verse by verse, I'm going to take the first verse and the last verse together, then the second and second to last, and so on and so forth. And my hope is that this allows us to, to draw out three key points this morning along with their implications. The first point being the, the Redeemer's work, the second point being the Redeemer himself, and then finally the Redeemer's qualifications. And as I mentioned earlier, each of these statements really could be a message in and of themselves or, or a whole series of messages. And above all, above all, above all, above all, my goal would be to honor the Lord Jesus and that we might glorify him even more. And so with that, let's be dig begin digging in. And so I want to first look first at the, redeem at the Redeemer's work. And as I already mentioned, in the previous section, Paul praises God for the work of redemption in the Colossian believers. And he wrote to them, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And from there, he begins to focus on the work of Jesus Christ. And so here in verse 13, he then writes, speaking of the Lord Jesus, who rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the son of his love. And so this, this speaks of a, a realm transfer. Rescued from the realm or the authority of darkness, that is Satan's realm, and transferred to the kingdom of the son of his love. That is the kingdom of God with Christ as king. In John's gospel, in John chapter 5, we read that the Pharisees sought to put Jesus to death because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. That's in John 5.18. And then uh, in John 5.24, Jesus tells them as part of his response, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. There's a transfer in realm. There's a change in realm in which we, in which we live. Formerly, and Paul writes this in, uh, in other letters, formerly we were under the, the domain of darkness, the authority of Satan and, uh, and of sin, but now we have passed out of that domain into the domain of the kingdom of the son of his love. And then jumping down to verses 21 and 22, for the corresponding statements, we see the implications of this realm transfer. And we read, And although you were formerly alienated and enemies in mind and in evil deeds, but now he reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. The first implication is this. Outside of Christ, we were counted as enemies of God, both in thought and in actions. In other words, we were under the authority of darkness. But now we are reconciled to God. That is, we are put into a right relationship with him. The second implication that we are presented is that, before, that we are presented before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. This means that God the Father through God the Son, dealt with all of our sin. And this is an already not yet implication. Because here and now, right now, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
this is your standing, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. How many of you feel that way? But that is our standing here and now. But it also speaks to our future state in glory. How can we stand before a holy God? Only if we are holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And this is exactly what Jesus accomplished on Calvary. So that through the work of the cross, we are transferred out of the authority of darkness into the authority of the kingdom of the Son of his love and are presented to him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. The third implication is the way in which this was accomplished. We read that he reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death. And I would say that, that this ultimately is the axis upon which the entirety of scripture revolves, and that is the work of redemption through the physical, bodily death of Jesus Christ at which point God the Father poured out his wrath for our sin upon the Son. And the fact that this was accomplished in the body of his flesh counters one of the false teachings that was, that was infecting this church. Was among, the, among the schools of thought at that time, among the Gnostic believers, was this idea that, that physical realm matter was evil. And matter is so far removed from God that that there's no way that God would take upon himself human flesh. So therefore, Jesus is not God, according to this school of thought. Rather, Jesus was a, either a, a good man upon whom God imputed divine uh, qualities, or that it just appeared that God became flesh at the incarnation. His physical appearance then, as well as his death, is really just an illusion. This teaching counters that. The next major statement that we see regarding the Redeemer's work in this passage is in verses 14 and in verse 20. In verse, t in verse 14, we read again regarding the Lord Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then down in verse 20, we read, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now, this already touches upon some of the things I've already talked about, and yet there's, there's still more here. First, we have redemption, which is qualified with the statement, the forgiveness of sins. In the Greek world, the idea of forgiveness is, is the idea of, of releasing from an office or an obligation or a debt or, or a penalty. And when Paul uses that term in, in his letters, he's using this in similar fashion, but he's applying this to the spiritual debt that we have or the, the, the penalty for our sin. And he speaks of it as, as in relation to our offenses against God, our trespasses and our sins. And later in, this, in, this, in his letter, in chapter 2 and verse 14, he'll pick up on this and he will write, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he also has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. We have redemption and the forgiveness of sins where that certificate of debt has been taken out of the way, nailed to the cross. The second thing to note here in verse 14 is that it is through Christ that we have this redemption. In Acts uh, chapter 4, verse 12, 
We read, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And so that's verse 14. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and is further qualified by verse 20, where we see that first the Father through the Son is reconciling all things to himself. Notice that this includes things on heaven or things, uh, things on earth or things in heaven. In Revelation, we see that it speaks of a new heavens and a new earth. In Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 21, Paul writes, For the anxious longing of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There is a redemption of all of creation through the work of the cross. Second, this work of reconciliation is through the blood of his cross, through him. And notice that it is also through the blood that we have peace with God. Again, in Romans chapter 5, Paul wrote, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the next set of verses, so we've considered the, the work of the Redeemer, we consider the Redeemer himself. So the work of the Redeemer was, was redemption, the work of reconciliation through the blood of his cross, through whom and through which we have peace with God. And now, as, as Paul narrows in his focus, we look at the Redeemer himself, the person of the Lord Jesus. And we see this beginning in the first part of verse 15 where we read, again, speaking of Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. And then down in verse 19, we read, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And again, we could spend a life, we could spend eternity trying to plumb the depths of what these two verses say. And so because of that, I'm going to borrow from uh, a portion of, of the Athanasian Creed. The uh, Athanasian Creed was named for uh, a fourth century bishop, Athanasius, who was a prominent defender of the Trinity. And in my opinion, when I read through this, outside of Scripture, I think this is one of the loftiest and most accurate views of the Trinity that we have, or at least that I've ever read. And be before I start reading, though, I, I do want to make one note. This creed refers to the Catholic faith. faith. Now, that shouldn't, that shouldn't scare us, okay? When we think Catholic, immediately we think Roman Catholic. But in the time of its usage, that meant a, a universal. It, it, com it comes from the Greek, which means concerning the whole, or, or again, universal. And so when he refers to the Catholic faith, he's referring to that which is universally true about our faith. And so he writes this. Now this is the Catholic faith. We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the divine being. For the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Spirit is still another. 
But the deity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-eternal in majesty. What the Father is, the Son is, and so is the Holy Spirit. Uncreated is the Father, uncreated is the Son, uncreated is the Spirit. The Father is infinite, the Son is infinite, the Holy Spirit is infinite. Eternal is the Father, eternal is the Son, eternal is the Spirit. And yet there are not three eternal beings, but one who is eternal. And there are not three uncreated and unlimited beings, but one who is uncreated and unlimited. Almighty is the Father, almighty is the Son, almighty is the Spirit, and yet there are not three almighty beings, but one who is almighty. Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there are not three gods, but one God. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, and yet there are not three lords, but one. As Christians, let's see, uh, there are not three lords, but one Lord. As Christian truth compels us to acknowledge each distinct person as God and Lord, so Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten. The Son was neither made nor created, but was alone begotten of the Father. The Spirit was neither made nor created, but is proceeding from the Father and the Son. Thus there is one Father, not three fathers, not one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three spirits. And in this Trinity, no one is before or after, greater or less than the other, but all three persons are in themselves co-eternal and co-equal. And so we must worship the Trinity in unity and the one God in three persons. I couldn't have made any better statement of who Jesus is when it says that, that he is the image of the invisible God and that in him all the fullness of, of God was pleased to dwell. And just to sum it up, Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. And we see this all throughout Scripture and other pastors. One of the big ones that, come, that came to mind for time, I don't have time to, to go there, but Philippians uh, 2, 5 through uh, 5 through 11, you can look that up. It's one of my favorite passages. But continuing with the person of the Redeemer, we want to move on to the second part of verse 15 and the corresponding statement in the second portion of verse 18. So verse 15, I'll just read the whole, the whole verse. Uh, regarding Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, and then moving on to our next point, the firstborn of all creation. And then in verse 18, the first part of it, or the second part of it, rather, uh, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And so when it speaks of the Son as the firstborn of all creation, one of the false teachings that's even around today says, well, see, he's the firstborn of creation. That means that he was created. And they would go on to say he was created first, and then he created everything else. But this doesn't understand, this, this is not what firstborn means in, in this context. In fact, even in the context of our, of our passage this morning, in verse 18 we read, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And that's really what this idea of firstborn means. Uh, some translations will say, that, so that he will come to have preeminence. 
And I believe that that's actually a better translation than what mine has. I like that preeminence better. Um, and second, while the term firstborn may refer literally to the firstborn son, it doesn't always. And we see that throughout Scripture. In Psalm 89 and verse 27, speaking of his servant David, the Lord says this about David. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, if you remember your scripture from 1 Samuel, was David the oldest son? No. Was he the second oldest? No. He was the youngest. And yet the Lord says, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And this idea here, again, we see this, this idea of preeminence. I will make him the highest of the kings of the earth. He has preeminence among the kings of the earth. Also consider 1 Chronicles 5, verses 1 through 2. And now 1 Chronicles 5, the first nine chapters, I'm going to be honest, that's flyover country for most of us. Because that, that's 1 first, first, uh, Chronicles, the first nine chapters, it's all genealogies. And, and if you know, I, I think about, you know, my daughter used to, used to joke about, you know, yeah, I can count to 100, you know, one, two, skip a few, 99, 100. You know, that was, you know, that's kind of what we do with these, with these passages, isn't it? And yet, in the middle of this, in First Chronicles 5, verses 1 and 2, we read this. Now, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, because, but because he profaned his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he is not recorded, that is, uh, Reuben, uh, so that he is not recorded in, in the genealogy according to the birthright. Though Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came the ruler, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. And again, if you know where Joseph was born in the line of, he was the second to last child and son born to Jacob, the firstborn of Rachel. But here again, the position of firstborn is, is associated with the position of authority within the family. And in this case, though Reuben was the firstborn, because of his sin, that right, that firstborn right, the birthright, was transferred from Reuben to Joseph. Even though he was younger than Judah, who was the fourth oldest, and even though the ruler, David, came through him, the birthright passed to Joseph. And now in the second portion of verse 18, so we see that he is the firstborn, of all creation. In the second portion of verse 18, we read, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that, he, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. He is the firstborn from the dead. Now, if we were to look through scripture, we would have to recognize that there were others who were raised from the dead before Jesus was raised from the dead, weren't there? Going into the Old Testament, Elijah raised a woman's dead son. Remember, a dead man was thrown in, on top of the, the bones of Elisha, and what happened? He sprung to life. And, of course, we see throughout his ministry that Jesus raised various people from the dead. Jairus' daughter, Lazarus, was one of the most prominent ones, and others like the, the, son of, the only son of the widow of Nain. And remember when Jesus sent his 12 out into the nation of Israel to preach the gospel of the kingdom, we read this in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 8 when he, when he instructed them, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. 
And of course, all of these who were raised from the dead, what eventually happened to them again? They died. But Jesus is different. I remember when Jesus came to, uh, came to the home of Mary and Martha uh, after Lazarus had died. And remember, he waited four days after receiving the news. He waited four days to leave. And when he, when he finally arrived and, and Lazarus is dead, and he comes to Martha first, and what, and what does she do? She come, when, when he arrives, he says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And, and what does he say to her? Martha, your brother will rise again. He said, oh, I know that he will rise again in the, in the resurrection. So the Jews had this idea of, of a resurrection at, at the, in the last days when, God would, when, when the, the people, the saints of God, would be raised from the dead. But what is Jesus' response to Martha there here then? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. In other words, Jesus is life and resurrection, and therefore he is the power and the source of all resurrections. Anyone who is raised from the dead is ultimately because Jesus himself is the resurrection. That's where that power comes from. And so when it says that he is the firstborn from the dead, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And he, he invokes the, the imagery from the Old Testament, from the law, or the, the, the farmers, the, the people of Israel, when they gathered their crops together, there would, be a, there would be a first crop that would come, and they would gather that crop up, the first fruits, and bring it to the Lord. Trusting in the promise that there would be more to come. And that's why Jesus is called the first fruits from the dead, because there is a promise of more to come. There is a promise that in a future day, and we see that through, throughout Scripture, that at the last, in the last days, at the sound of the trumpet, what does it say will happen? The dead in Christ will rise. Then we who are alive at the coming of the Lord will join them, will be caught up in the air, and there we will meet him, and then we will be with the Lord. The firstborn from the dead. We also read that he is the beginning. He is the source of all things. And this brings us to our last point this morning. So far we've considered the, the Redeemer's work in reconciling us to God through the blood of his cross so that we may be made fit to be in God's presence. We considered the person of the Redeemer, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation who has preeminence in everything. And we come to the Redeemer's qualifications. And this is the core concept. This is the, the center of that V in this structure of, of, this, of this portion of, of Paul's letter. And it's found in verses uh, 16 through the first part of verse 18. And the first statement here in verse 16 is this, For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And then the follow-up statements in 17 through the first uh, phrase in verse 18. 
And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. So what qualifies Jesus to be our redeemer? The first is that he is creator. It says, for in him all things were created. In, John, in John's gospel, John chapter 1 and verse 3, we read a very similar statement here. All things came into being through him, that is Jesus, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. He is the creator of all. We also see that all things in our pastors, that all things were created not only through him, but for him. Now, for, for millennia, philosophers have been trying to figure out what the, what the purpose or the meaning of life is. Well, here it is. You were created for him. You and I created for him. The second qualification that I want to draw out from this is, is his sovereignty. And this stems from the fact that he is a creator. And I just want to stop and, and think about this here and consider the following. The thickness of a single sheet of standard office paper is four thousandths of an inch thick. I know because I measured it. I have a micrometer that my dad used to have. I took it out and I measured it. And it was, it was actually 4.2 thousandths, if you wanted to be exact, but 4 thousandths is close enough. So if one sheet of paper were to represent a mile, the distance from the earth to the moon would be a stack of paper 79 feet high. That's astounding right there. Now, if we were to go from the earth to the sun, 93 million miles, roughly, would be a stack of papers 5.9 miles high. If we were to go from here to the nearest star, now technically the sun is our nearest star, but if we were to go to the nearest star, I think it was Alpha Centauri, the stack of papers, being at 4.3 light years from Earth, would grow to 1.6 million miles high. And then to cover the distance across the Milky Way, as far as we've estimated, at 37, uh, uh, I didn't write down how many, how many light years, but that stack of paper would be roughly 37.1 billion miles high. God created that. One author put it this way. I don't remember who. I think it may have been C.S. Lewis, but I, I'm not going to die for that. So if you know who this is, you can tell me later. He put it this way. Considering all this, is this the kind of God that we treat like, like a butler? That we treat like our servants? No. We're responsible to him. We are accountable to him, not the other way around. And Paul says that in creating everything, this includes everything that's in the heavens, on the earth, both visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. This means that all creation is subject to his authority and includes not only the physical universe, it includes all the dominions both governments on this earth and the, the dominions in the spiritual realm. This means that Satan is subject to the authority of Jesus Christ. Consider the Gospels when Jesus encounters demons. Do they, do they, do they come up to him and say, yeah, what's up? They're scared. Remember the one who was, uh, uh, the prime example is a demon-possessed man among the, the tombs in the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus approaches this man, 
the demon's response to him is, I beg you, do not torment me. They recognize his authority. Or consider James chapter 2 and verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. His sovereignty. He is the ultimate authority. The third qualification that we see here that we can derive from this is, is his eternal nature. Note that in verse 17, Paul writes, he is before all things. Now, this is logical, isn't it? If we really think about it, and I don't want to get too far into the weeds on this, but just to put it simply, if something exists, that means it had to be created, right? And whatever created that created thing had to exist before that thing that was created, right? I couldn't be born after my children were born. I had to be born before them. In other words, Jesus had to exist before all creation. As a creator, he had to exist before all creation. It means he, he was just there. God just is. And again, as we recall John's gospel in John chapter, the, op the opening verses in, in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so Jesus, as God, as we read through, as I read through the Athanasian Creed, he's eternal. He's infinite. No beginning, no end. Now, we can't wrap our minds around that. But that is a person of Jesus Christ because he is God, and that qualifies him to be our, our Redeemer because he is eternal. A third qualification is his sustaining power. Again, as seen in verse 17, and in him all things hold together. The author of Hebrews echoes uh, our passage this morning in, he in the opening verses of Hebrews chapter 1. God, having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days spoke to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things, how? By the word of his power, who having accomplished cleansing for sin, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Notice again in Hebrews that the worlds were made through Jesus, that he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature, which again echoes what Paul says here in our passage. And considering our current point, he upholds all things by the word of his power. What are the implications of that for us here this morning, today? That in him all things hold together. First, we consider his sustaining power over all creation. Now, if we were to look at the physical universe like, like this, this pulpit, this, this podium here, we would look at this and say, you know, this is, this is completely solid. Oh, sorry. It's, it's, it's a little bit loose there, so, so uh, uh, it is solid, though. It is sturdy. It's just this door is not, is, not, uh, uh, is not held shut. But if we were able to zoom in to the atomic level, what would we see? At the atomic level, 
we would see the atom, and in the middle of that atom, we'd have the nucleus, which contains the protons and the neutrons. Now, there's some other things that physicists have uh, discovered, but I'm protons and neutrons are good enough for us. Around that, circling that nucleus, in expanding levels, are electrons swirling around. They each have their place, so many electrons in each level. What is between that nucleus of the atom and the electrons at the different levels? It's empty space. And, uh, and so while this looks like it is solid, and it is solid because of the arrangement of the atoms and because we're looking at such a small thing as the atom is, it's space. It's empty space. How are these held together? Now, the, the scientists would probably say something like, oh, it's a, a gravity and all that kind of stuff. But according to the scripture, we know who holds us all together because we are upheld by the word of his power. And there's an even deeper, deeper implication than the upholding of the physical universe as I thought about that. And this has to do with our salvation, with our redemption. He not only sustains us physically, but he also sustains us spiritually. Consider John chapter 20, uh, excuse me, John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, ever. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one, is it? no one, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Or consider Romans uh, chapter 8, verses 35 and then 37 through 39. Paul asks this question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? That's a good question, isn't it? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or turmoil or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. That includes you and me. That includes ourselves any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. If we could lose this, this salvation that he has. See, he has a sustaining power. He upholds all things through the word of his power. That includes this, this physical universe and it includes our salvation so that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And I've said this to someone recently. If we are able to do that, if we can separate ourselves from the love of God in Christ, then we are more powerful than God. How arrogant. 
to think that we could undo something that God could do through Jesus Christ. Because we can't. He upholds all things, including our salvation. That, that is incredible. That in and of itself should bring us to our knees in praise and adoration and worship. Because of who Jesus is, his eternal nature, his sovereign will, his creative and sustaining power, and because of the work of redemption through which we have peace with God, we know that our salvation is secure. And just as it is one of the key points that Paul makes to the church in Colossae, it is just as true for you and me today. We are upheld. Our salvation sustained through the word of his power because the work of the cross is finished and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage. Surely the time that we have spent here this morning considering this is is not nearly the time that we need to to plumb the depths of this, but we thank you that for those of us who have trusted in the Lord Jesus, we have all of eternity to gaze upon, to consider the author and the perfecter of our faith, to dwell upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But until that day come, Father, we just ask that that these verses might help us that these verses might encourage us, that these verses would sustain us to know the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ is full and complete, irrevocable. We praise you for that. And I would pray if there is any here who is not trusted, in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus, that they would see Jesus for who he is, see the beauty of who he is, the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, firstborn from the dead, that they would look to him and be saved. We just give you the honor and the praise this morning for who you are and all that you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.